Welcome to Silicon Valley Founders Secrets. My name is Mahama Nyankamau. And my name is Christina Drew Weaver. Our guest today is Thomas Nazario. Thomas is the founder and the president of the Forgotten International, as well as attorney, child advocate. He's also a former law professor at the USF, and his expertise lies in the area of children's rights as well as issues related to global poverty. Thomas is the author of Living on a Dollar a Day and Doing Good. He's also the director of the powerful Amazon documentary, Living on a Dollar a Day. Thomas, ever since we met at the Opportunity Collaboration Conference in Mexico, it has been my dream to learn more about the work you do. Welcome and thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. Thomas, could you um, please share with us, share some lights on the issues of children's rights around the world? And what are some of the biggest challenges facing children in the Bay Area and also around the world? Well, with I mean, let me, let me just back up and give you a sense of what's going on here in terms of numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first started studying children's law, um, I wrote a book called In Defense of Children and in the process discovered that uh, of all the children in the world, less than 4% of them live in the United States. So the bulk of the children in the world, of course, live in other countries. The problems that children have in the United States are different than the problem that children have all over the world, largely because our standard of living is much higher here. And overall, children have more rights in the United States than they do in other countries. Uh, But I I decided uh, after learning that, that uh, really my mission in life was to first probably deal with some issues in the United States, but shortly after that, I needed to put my attention on children around the world because the needs there were so much greater. Uh, the, uh, uh, with regards to children around the world, it's usually social services that they don't receive. And as a result, they don't live as long as children here. Uh, let me give you an example of that. Uh, at any given, in any given day, uh, 18,000 children will die. Uh, and that, believe it or not, is a much better percentage than children 40 years ago. Uh, in and around 40 or 45 years ago, 40,000 children were dying each day. So we've made a lot of progress in that area. These days, also, children around the world, even though they've had serious problems with getting an education, there are far more girls in schools than there ever has been before. And of course, historically, it's girls that leave school first for a variety of reasons or don't go to school at all. Uh, the, the other kinds of things that are happening, far more children are being immunized now than in the past, and far more children have at least some opportunity to advance in life, uh, even, even if, if they grow up in poverty. Now, of course, there are a variety of other problems that are happening with children. They're usually the first to get hit hard during times of conflict. Uh, uh, within the family? Well, within the family and, of course, within the state. If there's a conflict within countries, as we've okay. seen now in Syria, it's the children, the mothers uh, that are often displaced and go through great hardship as a result. So uh, in the United States, yes, uh, we do have a relatively high number of children in living in poverty here, but it's very different than around the world, as, as you probably know. You mentioned about some of the improvement uh, in the past few years or few decades. What do you think uh, was left to be done? 
Well, you know, I think what's left to be done is that somehow the the world has to come to a realization that what's important in all of our lives is a new moral level of caring. Uh, the notion that uh, we can just go about doing what we do, enter in all sorts of conflicts that affect children, uh, begin the process of destroying this planet, uh, not really holding children in high regard is, uh, I think, what needs to be changed. We have to uh, grow up each day with the notion that there is nothing more important than our future and there's nothing more important than the kids because they're going to be really taking our future in their own hands very soon. So to educate them, to keep them healthy, uh, to give them uh, a really a feeling of responsibility to take care of this world as we move forward. Uh, I think that's what needs to be done and then the rest will take care of itself. Do you also work with the law legislators in the different countries, help them to uh, have more established laws to protect children? Um, we actually probably don't do enough of that. Uh, that's a huge undertaking and most countries wouldn't like us getting involved and that's one of the reasons why the United Nations exists. So us coming in as some small organization to uh, encourage this or that probably wouldn't work very well. Uh, what we generally do is we try to find uh, individual groups on the ground, small nonprofits that are much like the Mother Teresas of the world who care very much about lifting people out of property Uh, poverty, who work very hard every day doing that. And uh, uh, those are the people we trust. Those are the people we fund. And in our own little way, we try to make a difference. Wow. <clears throat> that brings me to this concept of policies, right? If you could implement some policies that would minimize the issues of neglect and abuse and other challenges that children face, what would be the things that you would like to do? Well, you know, if I had my way, if I was the ruler of the world, uh, one of the things I would do is create a, a United Nations that works. You know, I've spent years working with the UN and uh, really the bulk of the power uh, at the UN lies in the Security Council. And of course, uh, most of the countries that are involved in the Security Council have veto power over anything that happens there. And so as a result, uh, very little happens. Uh, it seems to me that... This, this world is run by, uh, you know, 193 countries that have uh, this notion that, uh, that they all must be treated as sovereign countries. Instead of coming together and making joint decisions about the benefit of this planet, mm -hmm. uh, that, I think, needs to be changed in the future. And if that was the case, if we had a United Nations that could truly bring people together that was democratic in nature rather than... Uh, having so much power in the hands of so many or so few powerful countries, then things would change globally. But So if I had my way, that's what I would tackle first. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I appreciate that. Uh, one of the things that I came across when I was uh, looking up your work was work that you've done with Tibetan kids and the Dalai Lama. I'm curious how that came about and what you can share about your experiences with, with our audience. Well, the short story is that uh, some years ago I wrote a very popular book called In Defense of Children and that got me on Oprah Winfrey and a million other shows and I traveled the country for two years. And as a result of that, 
my dean at my law school got a call, and uh, apparently the the UN wanted me to work on a committee. At that time, uh, the United Nations had just passed the International Convention on the Rights of the Child, and they were putting together this committee that would travel around the world and check in on children and how they were being treated by various countries. So I was put on this committee, and one of uh, one of my first uh, duties was to travel to India, meet with the Dalai Lama, and to do a report on the treatment of Tibetan children by the Chinese government. And uh, it was through that process where he and I became friends. He's now been a friend of mine for almost 20 years. I see him uh, quite often, and uh, he's taught me a lot of things. L let me give you an example. Uh, you know, one of the things that the Dalai Lama is noted for is his compassion for others. And in fact, he's the Buddha of compassion. And uh, some time ago when I was in India, I would, I would sit with him and I said, you know, since I have you here for a moment, let me ask you, what is this thing they call compassion? And um, maybe you can just inform me. And, uh, and he said, he, he would call me the little professor. He'd say, the little professor. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would say, uh, well, there are really two levels of compassion. One is that um, you're simply kind to others, respectful. Uh, you're not you're non-judgmental. Uh, you're a caring individual. Uh, and of course, that's very, very important. But a higher level of compassion is when you reach out and actually take the suffering away from other people, rel relieve them of suffering that might be going on. So you have to be more active. Uh, and... And then he said that, and even there's a higher level of that. He says, because it's sometimes easier or sometimes relatively easy to remove the suffering of your friends or your family. But when you do it with people that you don't even know, that you may never know, mm -hmm. that's true compassion. And so it was with those kinds of words that we decided to create my foundation to help people who have been forgotten all over the world and bringing them some compassion. Wow, that's very powerful. Thank you for sharing with <laughs> us. Um, actually, it got me curious about your background. And uh, I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about your background, your journey from Spanish Holland to the work you do today. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it's been a bit of a journey. And, you know, what's very true in, in life in general is that you never really know where life's going to take you. There's all these little bends and all of a sudden something either really good could happen or something bad could happen and all of a sudden you're in a different direction. But I've been very blessed. Um, yes, I grew up in Spanish Harlem. My mother is Cuban. My dad's Puerto Rican. Uh, I grew up pretty much in poverty myself. Uh, and But I, I ran into some people that kind of helped me. In fact, one kind of silly story is I had this crush on this girl when I was a kid. And, How old uh, were you? I was... I was about 16, but I loved her dearly, <laughs> largely from afar because she wouldn't even look at me. But <laughs> first love? <laughs> that's my, kind of my first love, oh, yeah. Wow. And um, Maybe she's on one of the audience on the uh, show. Uh, that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to meet her again. <laughs> yeah, her name is Janet, and uh, I tried to impress her by, by working very hard as a kid and getting a job and then buying myself a car and then... I made this deal with her that I would pick her up every morning to take her to high school. And so for three years, I would drive her to school, hoping that someday she would give me a little date or something, <laughs> anything. That, that, that never happened. But what she oh. did instead was uh, 
while we were in high school, my senior year, she asked me, hey, Tom, what college are you going to? You know, and my, my family had never gone to college, and we hadn't even thought about it. And so um, I had to say something because I wanted to impress her. <laughs> so I heard about this school in New York called Cornell, and I said, I'm going to Cornell. Which is a pretty fancy school. Yeah, I just heard about That's it. Fancy. I, I hadn't hadn't applied or anything. Yeah, but um, but she said, "Oh, that's great. That's a great school." But if she hadn't asked me that question, I probably never would have gone to college. I never would have met some professors that took care of me and encouraged me to do more. Probably never gone to law school and so on and so forth. So it's it's an example of those little things that might happen in life that turn your whole life around. Uh, and of course, when I went to law school and, and eventually became a lawyer and started teaching law and getting very, very involved in children's rights, I, I always reflected back on, okay, what happened to me as a teenager and why is kids, why are the life of children so important? And that's why I concentrated on, on kids' law. And um, that's also worked out well for me because, you know, it got me my job at the United Nations, got me to travel around the world and, of course, meet people like the Dalai Lama. Wow, thank you for sharing with us. And you mentioned a moment ago that you're very blessed and meet some of the people who can help you along the way. Uh, could you share with us a little bit about the mentors who have made the biggest impact in your life and how they were helping to shape your life? Oh, yeah. you, you know, the kind of people I like most are humble people. Uh, for example, I had this professor who not only encouraged me to uh, kind of go a step beyond myself and, uh, and really think of, you know, for a while I wanted to become a, a police officer because mm -hmm. I, I love the movie, uh, Bullet, where Steve McCrean I think that will, that job will impress Janet, maybe. <laughs> so, but this, this, this teacher of mine said, I, I could become a lawyer, I could become a judge, I could do anything I wanted. No one had ever told me that before. And at the same time, I would go into his office, and the only diploma he had on the, on the wall was his kindergarten diploma. And he said, even though he's PhD and so on and so forth, uh, he never really spoke highly of himself. It was always a very, very modest approach to life, very humble man. And it's those kinds of men and people that I've been attracted to all my life. Uh, I think uh, the truth of the matter is that, you know, when you reach the end of your days mm -hmm. and someone is, is up there giving your eulogy, no one's really going to care about your resume or what fancy schools you went to or all the people that you met. Yeah. They're going to care about, you know, whether you were kind, whether you were humble, mm -hmm. whether you were compassionate for other people. And uh, those are the qualities that I get attracted to. And, you know, and, and you know, my, uh, I won't say who, but I've, I've been a little bit um, attacked in my life for not getting big fancy jobs and doing more in terms of, having a lot more money. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, when you die, no one's going to care about how thick your wallet was. They're going to mm -hmm. care about, you know, how much was in your heart, not in your wallet. Well, thank you for sharing. <laughs> um, what you mentioned, I uh, shared with us, actually I thought about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And actually when I first heard, bless those who are meek because they shall inherit the earth. Right. I didn't understand, you know, for me it's like, like you say, you know, fancy jobs, you know, fancy yeah. school, money and power. 
I didn't understand, but you know, when I learn later in life, and I really see the true meaning of it. So what you shared with me really yeah. like resonated with me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, also, I was wondering what struggles and failures had made an impact in your life, and how did you overcome them, and what lessons uh, you have learned, and could you share with us? Well, there was one thing that was very difficult for me as a, as a young boy, and that is that I'm dyslexic. And so I, um, I really had a lot of difficulty reading and spelling as a child. And back in those days, uh, they, they didn't really know what that was. And people, your teachers would just think you were dumb. And so I was put in kind of a dumb class. <laughs> I was tracked into this class for the educable mentally retarded. Is that what they in fact called it in New York? Um, but at the same time, my dad when I was four years old, taught me how to play chess. Mm -hmm. And for about six years, I would play chess with my dad every night. And it took me six years to finally beat him. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> a victory day. <laughs> and so I was like a 10-year-old boy, and I was very, very good in chess. And my mother would take me around to parks where old men are playing chess, mm -hmm. and she would, say, <laughs> she would say, my son can beat you. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was playing chess in the parks with these older men, and I would beat them, and I would, I'd beat everybody. Oh, wow. And I became a chess champion as a kid. And so on one side of my life, I had people telling me I was dumb. And on the other side of my life, I had people telling me, you know, mm -hmm. anybody who can play chess the way you do, mm. you got to be brilliant. And so somewhere in the middle, I figured, you know, as long as I work hard, I can beat this thing, dyslexia. And, uh, and I've been able to do that all my life. And the truth of the matter is that a lot of people who are dyslexic do quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of uh, very successful people that have, that, that have this uh, problem. Mm -hmm. I still um, have trouble spelling a lot of fancy words. <laughs> I still need uh, my assistant to help me uh, spell things sometimes. And luckily, my phone helps me sometimes too. I don't think it's that much of an issue now with like the autocorrect. That's you know? right. <laughs> yeah. So um, also I was wondering, what, what are the things that you have changed your mind about? Uh, you know, um, I'd like to believe, recently I, I've been thinking about this. I, I used to be more optimistic than I am now. Mm. With so much going on in the world in terms of constant battles between religious sects or countries uh, with the problems of climate change, with uh, now a pandemic is, that is beginning. You know, uh, some years ago, I, uh, I did a talk at my university about the five biggest problems facing the world. Mm -hmm. And um, more and more, I'm thinking that this is going to get worse before it gets better. I, I used to place a lot of um, uh, hope in, in the new, new and upcoming generation, and I, and I still do, mm -hmm. but these uh, challenges are getting so great, and there are so many, I don't want to use the word idiots <laughs> running this world, <laughs> but uh, maybe that's the appropriate word, and uh, I think we have to get out of ourselves, get out of our egos, and begin to look forward. And I don't see that happening as much as I, I'd like. Mm -hmm. So it's beginning to trouble me. Yeah. <clears throat> so when you talked about that thing on the 
five problems of the world, I got curious. I mean, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I do, still the same problems plaguing the world. Yeah, well, yeah, and and actually, when in the year two thousand, uh, the millennium year, uh, the United Nations pulled together over a thousand experts, and they did this huge study called the Millennium Report, and it was in that report that they they noted the five biggest problems facing the planet uh, in the in the coming millennium, and if I remember them all, uh, one is global health, global poverty. Uh, climate change and uh, the prevention, uh, the um, the protection of human rights all around the world, mm-hmm. and fifth is um, pandemics, which we are now looking at. Very topical, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those are the biggies. Yeah, you mentioned about um, the next generation. I think we spoke uh, talk a little bit. Um, I think they are looking for you know, inspirations and looking for the leaders they admire to follow. And uh, can you share with us who are the leaders you admire and what are, what are the qualities that you admire about? Well, I mean, again, I, I admire people who are smart, who are humble, who care for other people uh, and, uh, and wish to make this world a better place. I have difficulty with people who have so much to give and such capacity and do nothing. Uh, I have... Uh, frustrated. It's, it's, it's troubling. I mean, uh, I, I was being interviewed once by a, a group of young people mm. and this young girl said to me, um, I feel so guilty because my family is so rich and I'm going to be getting this money and I know now that there are so many people so poor who are suffering and I... And I told her, well, don't feel guilty about that. It's not your fault. You're rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just remember to do something about the world when you have the capacity to do so. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think that's one of the things that uh, when I run into people that, that think that way, that want to do something, that get up every day and go to a job that's meaningful, uh, those are the kinds of people that inspire me. Thank you for saying that. Just uh, reminds me also of growing up uh, in Ghana and some of the people that I admired were people who really were down to earth. And I just have this thing about if someone is arrogant, I there's something that turns me off uh, about them. And I can actually tell from my interactions with you, your humility it comes across. I, I watched your documentary, Living on a Dollar a Day, mm-hmm. and it connected me I would say reconnected me to my passion growing up and even coming to the U.S. and working on issues of poverty alleviation and issues of clean water. One of the things that I really liked was um, some of the things you said in the documentary, and I would encourage a lot of people to check it on Amazon as uh, 11 on a dollar a day. You say something there, you say, we can all be heroes. We all should be at least to some extent, you say. Give up ourselves, our time, our talent to help a person in need as often as we can. That's the only thing that's going to make this world a better place. So that, that, that spoke to me a lot. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, the Living on a Dollar Day project that you did with uh, mm-hmm. Rene and how it came about and what was your experience doing it? Well, the way it came about is uh, prior to that time, I had been doing a lot of work with the UN and traveling all over the world and and visiting children in a variety of countries and seeing what was going on. Um, 
I, I, uh, I wanted people to kind of look through my eyes. And so I decided, well, why don't we make a documentary and visit some of these countries that I've been in and show the world some of the things I've seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people need that perspective. I think we spend far too much time in, in shopping malls or in, in enclosed environments or in fancy neighborhoods or in, in places that really provide us with no exposure to that. Uh, so um, we decided that I, I decided that I would <laughs> essentially call one of my friends, tell them that I've got this project that I need some money. And uh, in fact, I texted him (laughs) (laughs) and uh, he sent us some money and we were able to match that grant. And uh, it took quite a while because we went to, as I said, 10 countries all over the world and four different continents. Uh, We had to figure out, okay, what kind of stories do we want to get from each country and and then put it all together. And it took, it was a three year long project. So... uh, uh, it was something that I think I'm quite proud of, but it was based on a book that I did first. The book came first, then the movie. So um, one of the reasons why it took so long is that I had to write the book. So, um, and and it it's a wonderful book. It sold very, very well. It's still out there, uh, living on a dollar a day, and it captures the lives of maybe 45 individuals and families that survive on almost nothing every day and work often work so hard but have very little to call, uh, show for it. And, and though some of it is sad, uh, a lot of it is uh, heartwarming. And even though there is a lot of suffering out there, there's still a lot of happy families that, you know, one of the things we discovered even though people were poor, they lived in tight-knit communities, they knew everybody that lived around them, they were you know, friends that would Close. help each other. They would cook for each other when people didn't have enough food. That kind of thing doesn't happen in America. You come home and you kind of go into your little cave and uh, the only connection you have with a lot of people is through your phone. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it's that community that I think we're beginning to lose in this country. But in many countries, they need that to survive. And so it's still there and still healthy. That reminded me when I was a kid in China, that I would just, you know, go to the neighbor's house and we don't even lock our door, you know, just play with them and the kids there. And then so it's a, it's a very, uh, like, tight community. Yeah, it's but like, like a- you say, live in the U.S., you kind of just, you know, drive in the pocket car, you go back, watch TV, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you had yeah. an extended family there and that's what we've discovered around the world. But that brings some happiness and close connection and that yeah one of the the biggest keys to happiness is relationships and positive relationships that that really build your self-esteem i actually want to hear a little bit more about that Mm -hmm. um in terms of relationships i have found that at least for me connecting with people is the thing that brings me happiness right what would you say i know you're very interested in uh inspiring kids and teenagers in particular from some of your work. What would be your advice to young people coming up in general as to how to uh, live probably their best lives, I would say? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that when I get a chance to talk to young people is uh, I tell them very, very quickly that, you know, the life that lies before you is going to be broken up into three parts. 
you know, a third of your life is going to be sleeping. <laughs> a third of your life is going to be work. And a third of your life is for everything else. And so um, it's very, very important to find a job, to do work that's meaningful and makes you happy. And the key here is if you have a job that's meaningful, that will make you happy. If you have a job that's not meaningful and you're doing the same thing every day that brings no joy to anybody. Like dead-end job? A dead-end job that is not very productive and who cares? You know, it's, it's keeping the machine going but doesn't really provide you with any joy inside. So um, that's the kind of you know, advice I give to people. Even if it's hard, even finding that kind of job, just go to your gut, see what makes you happy, and then try to work that into your life because you only have one life. Very inspiring. Awesome. There's just so much more that we would like to talk to you about. There may be people listening who would want to get more information about how to get in touch with your work and contribute to your work. How can people contact you or get involved with some of the work that you're doing? You know, the easiest thing is just go to Google and Google the Forgotten International. You'll get hooked into our website. We have an office here in San Francisco. Uh, and we do a variety of projects through the foundation. And if there's something on our website that you kind of like, just give us a call. And um, it's not that difficult to reach me or get involved. Okay, I'll put in the show notes the Forgotten International website. Pe people listening to the podcast can, can check your website. Okay. Thank you so much. It's, it's been such an <laughs> inspiring conversation. As an exit question, uh, Thomas, I would like you to envision this. Today is March, March 6, 2025. All your big dreams have come true and a dinner has been held to, in your honor to celebrate. I know I said, Humble man, that's probably not an easy thing for you. <laughs> You've been asked to give a short talk to an audience that includes your friends, your workers, yeah. your family. What accomplishments would you be celebrating and what would you say? To you know, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm going to take a little bend on, the, on that question because, uh, you know, people have wanted to do those kinds of things for me mm -hmm. and I always run away from that. <laughs> so that's his answer. Run away. Yeah. And the, the, the reason for that, you know, is that the truth of the matter is, though, though I've done some good work around the world and visit a variety of people in need, but these days what I do is I pretty much get up in the morning, get in my Mercedes, turn on my electric uh, heat, heater seat, and drive to San Francisco and see people on the streets that have been freezing all night. Uh, on occasion, seeing people that come and help them, get them to uh, a service center or bring them some hot coffee. Uh, or teachers that work so hard every day to educate kids and come home with a million papers to grade. Or even police officers that come to the aids of people and risk their own lives. I mean, those are the real heroes. Uh, not someone like me. Uh, I get to the office and I, I write checks to people. Uh, and it's not even my money. It's money that other people have given me. So my standard of living has not been reduced by very much through my work. Uh, and uh, so I've, I've not given up much at all. So uh, the notion of making me some sort of good guy uh, wouldn't be fair to all the real heroes of the world. 
you know, the Mother Teresa's, as I said earlier. So I just go about my way and uh, do my share. Not much more. <laughs> yeah. That is so eye-opening. And, yeah. and it humanity. reminded me. It reminded me a book, that actually, a children's book called Everyday Hero. Talk about policemen, <laughs> firemen. You know, that's they teach kids. You know, who are the heroes? And so, They're the wow. true heroes. <laughs> They're the true heroes. Yeah. Well, th- this is so humbling for me yes. and at the same time I just want to say that the checks you write make a difference in the world as well <laughs> oh thank you so and you've done your share of traveling the world so yes. let's not uh, minimize that once again on behalf of Christina and myself thank you for coming to our show we enjoyed it and I feel very touched such and inspired pleasure, yeah. to do more with my life in terms of helping people yeah. such a pleasure to you know, <laughs> well, thank interview you. you and then you'll be on the show so thank you for honor. having me Right. Okay. <laughs>